0: I mean, the history of of, uh, Britain and the EU is is highly uh, germane to all this because the fact is this has been a... Our membership of the European community and then the European Union has been a very controversial issue ever since Jean Monnet's time and the decision taken by the governments of Churchill and uh, Eden in the 50s not to take part or to withdraw from the negotiations which led to... uh, Treaty of Rome for two or three main uh, reasons Uh, one was uh, instinctive really uh, and I think that instinctive factor was very prevalent uh, two months ago the instinctive factor being that as an island uh, your view of the world is very different after all if you if you set sail uh, from Dover, you may go to Calais or you may go to Cathay, you can go as far as, it's very different. It's very different psychologically from having uh, a land frontier. Also, of course, uh, as an island, much of our history for the previous two or 300 years have been about resisting continental encroachment and preventing uh, continental powers combining uh, against us. We emerged from World War II with our national institutions vindicated, whereas our future partners emerged with their institutions uh, either disgraced, as in the case of Germany or Italy, or effectively uh, destroyed. So for them, the countries of the original six, the idea of forming an organization which had this large supranational uh, aspect to it was because the nation state had lost respectability uh, and lost the sort of basis of its foundations of trust uh, in public opinion. And so the idea of something that was bigger than, greater than the nation state uh, was politically very appealing. It had, of course, the, a paradoxical effect, which was that in creating that those supranational institutions around which the, uh, on which the EU is based, it ac- actually had the, Side effect of making the nation-state again respectable because it was a framework within which the nation-state could uh, operate. So post-war Germany, because it was bound into the European Community later the European Union, could develop redevelop its national institutions uh, and its strength uh, as a uh, uh, as a country. Also for our for our partners because the succession World War I and World War Two had shown that their frontier that a land frontier was completely porous. The idea of the frontier as such was much less significant than it was uh, for us, uh, the British, where ultimately the fact that we were surrounded by sea is what saved us from uh, from invasion. Then on top of that, of course, we had the fact that we were still an empire uh, and we had established with the United States a uniquely close relationship as partners in the war and that relationship continued. It was not a relationship of equals, but we were the nuclear powers. Uh, and uh, we shared uh, a language and we shared a a large amount of cooperation on intelligence. So all those things led uh, the government of the day, supported by public opinion, uh, to decide that this uh, European community, with its supranational institutions, which had implications for the sovereignty of of our parliament, uh, was not one that we were going to join. The first person to change their mind over this was uh, Harold Macmillan. He became prime minister on the back of the Suez debacle, uh, which showed that actually the relationship with the United States was very much a relationship of unequals because what forced Britain and France to withdraw uh, from Suez was basically that the Americans pulled the plug uh, on uh, on Sterling. So that made us... The British think we should never again get across the United States, but it also made them realise that we were, not, we were no longer able to power, and Macmillan's view was that there were two superpowers in the world, the Soviet Union on the one hand and the United States on the other, and that the only way for Britain to exercise power in the world, both economically and almost more importantly politically, was by combining with uh, other countries. And the European community, founded in 1957, contrary to expectations, I mean, most of the time before its foundation, the, the prevalent view by and large among civil servants and ministers was that this was doomed to failure, doomed to failure because these were, after all, countries that had failed uh, only about a decade uh, before. And it was only In the mid-1950s, the British Treasury started to say, well, actually, if it succeeds, then we might have to join it because the pattern of British trade, which had been predominantly with the countries of the old Commonwealth, up to the mid-1950s, Britain's biggest export market by value was Australia, then a country of 10 million uh, people, Uh, and it was only gradually that that pattern of trade began to shift, and as it shifted, Uh, and in particular after the foundation of the European community, and the European community started to develop in terms of growth uh, and started over time to outstrip uh, the British economy, that those combination of factors led Macmillan to change his mind about it and, interestingly, to persuade a reluctant Conservative cabinet uh, that they should apply for uh, membership. And it was that negotiation uh, which terminated abruptly at the beginning of 1963 when President de Gaulle of France vetoed the British uh, application and he did so uh, on the basis not so much of kind of pique at his treatment by the Anglo-Saxons when he'd been the sole representative of the Free French uh, during the war but more on a realistic assessment of French national uh, interest. After all here was an organisation which basically uh, had brought France and Germany together again, gave France equal standing with Germany although the German economy was already more powerful Uh, was also built around a common agricultural policy which was designed to provide export subsidies for French agricultural overproduction and at that point 90% of the European community budget was taken up by Uh, agriculture, and de Gaulle saw that if the British joined, we would change that radically. We would change it radically, first of all, because we did look to the United States in terms of the transatlantic relationship, and secondly, because we were a free-trading nation, and of course the essence of of the common market was just that. It was a customs union with free trade within a uh, a tariff barrier. That was why de Gaulle vetoed, and why he vetoed again in 1967. when Harold Wilson, uh, uh, the Labour government that succeeded Macmillan, again uh, applied to join, again having gone through very much the same process. Wilson's view and the view of the Labour Party was very much that the European Free Trade Association, uh, Norway, uh, Sweden, uh, uh, and others with us, a British creation designed in a way to rival the common market, uh, that was Wilson's view, build build up EFTA and do some kind of deal with the common market, with the European community, But EFTA was already too small. Many of the EFTA countries themselves wanted to join. And so the Wilson government reached exactly the same conclusions as the Macmillan government had done, i.e. that for economic and, above all, political reasons Britain had to apply to join, they applied to join, again, with um, controversy within the Labour Party for rather similar reasons that had divided the Conservative Party and were dividing public opinion. They applied to join, and again, in 1967, Uh, de Gaulle uh, vetoed the British uh, application Uh, and it was not till uh, de Gaulle fell from power that the door was uh, opened and just as the negotiations were about to recommence uh, Wilson called a general election he was 10 points ahead in the opinion polls uh, but lost to Edward Heath and the Conservatives and it was Heath therefore who conducted the negotiations on the back of a mandate worked out by the Labour government Um, and Opinion within the, the then Conservative Party, which was, I mean, Heath was very, very, Heath was a pro European by conviction, but within the Conservative Party, there were people in the Conservative Party, even in the 1970 general election, who stood in their constituencies on anti European platforms. Enoch Powell, the famous infamous um, uh, author of the Rivers of Blood speech, who'd been expelled by Heath from the Conservative front bench, was nonetheless still a prominent Conservative, and Heath was quickly warned very soon after the 70 election, that Enoch Powell saw opposition to membership of the European community as a means of un, uh, unseating Heath from the uh, leadership. So Heath had divisions within his own party. Meanwhile, the Labour Party in opposition, having expected to win and, but having lost, um, opinion turned uh, radically against uh, Europe uh, and so the Labour Party opposed the terms uh, that Heath negotiated, even though they were identical to the terms that Labour, a Labour government would have uh, negotiated. And it was only thanks really, to, to rebels within the Labour Party, i.e. rebels who were prepared to vote in favour of membership, uh, that the Conservative government uh, carried the day. And the only way Wilson could hold his party together stopped them from coming out in favor of a policy of leaving the European community was by promising that if Labour were re-elected to government there would be a renegotiation, uh, followed either by a general election and a referendum. And as we know in 74, 75 there was a renegotiation, which achieved very little, if anything slightly less than Cameron achieved uh, in his, and then a referendum uh, in which 66% turnout, lower turnout than in our referendum, but 66% of the British people Throughout the UK, I mean, there were variations, but the whole of the UK, except for um, the Orkneys and the Outer Hebrides, voted to uh, remain. And the reason that we then voted for remain were partly uh, economic. The British economy was then pretty much a basket case. A year later, we had to call in the IMF to literally to uh, bail us out, whereas the continental economies uh, were doing uh, much better. And also, they, the the threat from the perceived threat from the Soviet Union uh, was a real threat, seen as a real threat, and therefore safety uh, uh, in numbers, and the feeling that this. That, I mean, opinion polls afterwards showed that people felt that, in terms of their future security and prosperity, membership of the European Community was better than the reverse, and the people on who were campaigning to remain in the European community uh, stood much higher uh, as individuals in terms of respect among public opinion than um, those of, by and large on the uh, on the on the leave side but there was a fundamental issue still uh, in the uh, at the heart of the terms which Britain had been compelled to accept in joining the European community was which was that even though we were in terms of per capita GDP, one of the poorer members of the European community, we along with Germany were the only country actually paying into the budget rather than getting uh, a net return from the budget. That was one of the issues in Wilson's renegotiation. He got a deal that in the end didn't deliver any money back to the UK and it became a very big issue uh, when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister following Jim Callaghan in 1979. And really, for the first five years of her administration, she was fighting a non stop battle with our partners to secure an equitable financial arrangement whereby Britain would pay her fair share i.e. commensurate with countries of similar prosperity uh, rather than much more of her fair share so you have a, you have a period really from the start of the uh, from the start of the negotiations for the foundation of the European uh, community where Britain absented it, itself but then 57, the European community begins. By 1961, Macmillan has decided to apply to uh, to join, but it's then a further 12 years before Britain's actually allowed to join, and then effectively from 1973 to 1984, more than a decade in which Britain is effectively renegotiating the terms of its membership. And Margaret Thatcher, partly because of that negotiation and various other, reason, uh, various other reasons, gradually began to turn against uh, the... Um, the idea of uh, membership of the European community or well, certainly, if not against membership, certainly against what she perceived to be the direction the European community was, was, uh, was taking, because the prevailing mood at the time, led by Germany, was that the destination should be some kind of federal union, of which, of course, a single currency uh, would be one of the, uh, one of the hallmarks. And uh, Jacques Delors, who was then the president of the Commission, um, in uh, 1990 made a speech in which he said the future of the European community was that the government of the European community would be the European Commission, Mm -hmm. unelected, answerable to the elected European Parliament with the heads of government of the European community being a kind of Senate or second chamber. That was uh, the proposition to which Margaret Thatcher famously said no, no, no in the House of Commons in turn, precipitating the resignation of Geoffrey Howe, who had been her foreign secretary, uh, and precipitating her own uh, downfall. Um, And after her downfall, um, her successor, John Major, negotiated in the Maastricht Treaty, the British opt out from the single currency, but also the right to opt in if we decided to do so. Margaret Thatcher set herself up in the House of Lords in opposition to her successor and loyalty among conservatives to the fallen leader became uh, synonymous with anti europeanness And one of those who sat at Margaret Thatcher's feet uh, at that time uh, was a young David, a young David uh, Cameron. In the meantime, uh, the Labour Party, which uh, through much of the 1980s, its public policy, including standing in the 1983 election, where it was heavily defeated, was to actually come out of the European community. Uh, under Neil Kinnock, the Labour Party gradually began to shift not least because the Conservatives were going, in, were going in the opposite direction, the Labour Party began to shift towards pro europeanness and when Tony Blair was elected in 1997, it was massively on a, a pro-European uh, platform. So what I've tried to do, though, really, is give a, a sense that this, that, these, that this argument that we've seen played out rather you know, decisively has actually been an argument that's never, never stopped, really, for the, well, throughout most of my, uh, throughout most of my lifetime. And if you look at opinion polls throughout that period, they've always been like this in terms of, you know, was there a majority in favour of being in or was there a majority uh, in favour of being out? At a time where until probably the last decade, uh, opinion polls in all the other European uh, community and then European Union countries were overwhelmingly in favour of staying in. So that's why, in a sense, it's not to me a total surprise that we got to where we did on the 23rd, Plus, I think, I mean, the spin doctors for the, for the Remain uh, side, and I did a lot of campaigning, so I'm one of the people who failed to uh, deliver the result, but the work done by the Remain side in focus groups and, and so on, they were very clear, and they were accurate in, in this, I think, was that this, this was indeed going to be, long before the, the, the Leave campaign came up with the take control slogan, that this was about uh, control, that in a society... Uh, where people had uh, experienced first of all 9/11, then 7/7, then a kind of terrorism which we'd never known uh, before. We'd known IRA terrorism, but it was of a very different kind. And this inability to get your head around the notion that uh, people from prosperous, well-educated backgrounds, young people, could be seduced by ISIS—that kind of fear of the sort of terror within you, within the, within your society. That, on the one hand, the collapse or near collapse of the banking system uh, in 2008, either people who should have been the epitome of trustworthiness uh, proving to be the least trustworthy and everything that followed from that, including of course uh, recession and then uh, years of austerity, all that uh, and the whole issue of global insecurity uh, with the rise of aggression in Russia again, all that was leading people to want to take control and the job of the, of the Remain campaign was to convince them that control was not about going inside your house and closing your front door, uh, but it was about actually continuing to engage uh, with, the, uh, with the world. And as we know, that argument didn't uh, prevail and migration was the, the principal manifestation of it, that it was, it was a manifestation both in its own terms, as it were, in terms of people's the perceived impact of migration, but almost more as a kind of symptom uh, of all these other things. And I met quite a lot of people in the campaign for whom migration was the most important issue, even though some of them were from areas where they never saw a a migrant of any nationality and didn't actually care how many migrants there were as long as we, the British, were in control uh, of our own frontiers and for those people uh, being in control of your frontier was one of the defining things about being a nation state. And if you are an island and you have that perception that you can control your frontier, it obviously has perhaps more of a, a psychological impact uh, than if you uh, live on the landmass of the uh, 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 of the continent. So we find ourselves, you know, in the situation uh, we're in. Brexit means Brexit, or as Liam Byrne said after David Davis's statement in the House, "Waffle means waffle," <laughs> um, and what. Where does the government want to go from here? I think da- what David Davis was saying the other day was basically, first of all, Article 50 we know won't be triggered this year, but I, he came pretty close to saying that it will be triggered early next year. That means a two-year negotiating period. He came pretty close to saying that Britain wouldn't seek an extension of the two-year period because although it would be open for us to do so, that requires the unanimous consent of the twenty-seven other members of the European Union, uh, which A, is possibly unlikely, and secondly, of course, it means every every single one could say, well, of course, we will agree to extend, provided that you make this or that concession. Uh, I think there was some advice from the civil service that triggering Article 50 should be postponed until after the German elections, which makes sense, because we're likely to have a kind of phony war with elections uh, in the Netherlands, France, and Germany next year. But... For political reasons in the UK as well as political reasons on the continent, I think that is not going to be uh, is not going to be possible. David Davis also made clear that one of the various off-the-shelf uh, uh, solutions—the Norway solution, the Swiss solution, etc.—is not what we're going for. Something we hope will be unique uh, for the United Kingdom, and it's clear from what he said and was then rather slapped down on by Number Ten. Um, that this is the big trade-off. The trade-off is between what we in continuing either membership of the existing single market or privileged access to uh, the single uh, market, and what concessions do we have to make? The principal areas of concession being one in terms of freedom of movement. Uh, now, no British government is going to, is can on the back of the referendum say, well, we're simply going to maintain freedom of movement uh, as is. Are there alternatives like uh, uh, a work permit scheme, i.e. you come to Britain if you you have got a job to come to? 70% of migrants from the EU already have a job uh, when they come here. Other important factors in all of this, of course, one is maintaining the unity of the United Kingdom, which Theresa May put at the very top of her uh, list of objectives on the steps of Downing Street. The other is maintaining at least something approximating to the open border between Britain and the Republic of Ireland. Now, you can't have a completely open uh, border with free movement from the rest of the EU to the Republic of Ireland, and not, uh, um, by that very fact, uh, um, continue, you, have, you would continue to have um, uh, freedom of movement to the rest of the UK, given that the government had promised that they will not impose controls between Northern Ireland and, uh, uh, and the rest of Britain. But again, if you had some kind of work permit scheme, um, uh, maybe that would limit the extent of um, the frontier controls that would have to be imposed at the border between the Republic uh, uh, and the North. The main thing that's going on, I think, at the moment, and the reason why David Davis's statement was so content-free, is because no work was done on this by order of David Cameron, no work was done on this by civil servants before the referendum because they were frightened that if they were working on plans for Brexit, it would be FOI'd, Freedom of Information, uh, and make it look as if uh, they were convinced they were going to lose. And the job of the civil servants is proving very difficult because you've got three Brexiteers in the three key jobs, and of course those ministers don't want to hear Uh, the painful truth of the enormous complexity uh, of this negotiation, uh, of the unravelling that has to be done, the legal legal complications, uh, and certainly the civil service view at the moment is that even if you actually formally left uh, the European uh, uh, Union after two years, you would have to have extensive transition periods uh, while new arrangements... Uh, fell into place. Rather as now if you negotiate to join the European Union you join on a certain day but there is a transition period during which you gradually adopt uh, the laws of the European Union. Um, And Theresa May, number 10 on Theresa May's behalf have recently sent out a letter to all ministers but it's addressed primarily to the Brexit ministers which is basically saying the Prime Minister is fed up with uh, getting letters about this negotiation which are all about assertion. Uh, unsupported by argument, and what she wants is the argument, the detailed argument, and then the conclusions which flow from the argument. So, this is a process. I mean, they, if I'm right, uh, that the Article 50 is going to be triggered um, early, fairly early next year, there's a huge, huge amount of work that has to be uh, done. And of course, the climate for negotiation with our partners is not going to be easy with uh, Dutch, uh, French, German elections coming up. And certainly inside the Foreign Office, the people who they think will be uh, toughest are those countries such as uh, Denmark, Sweden, and and France and the Netherlands, where similar issues to our own in terms of public opinion uh, arise. So what should we be uh, aiming at? And this is where you're going to do the work, really, I hope for the next half hour, because I really know, seriously, I really do want to know your your, view. First of all, whether it is, um, not just a desirable... I mean, I would, you know, I would love to think this thing could be, you know, reversed, uh, but is that, is that a desirable aim uh, or is it in any way a realistic aim? And if not, what kind of Europe should we be aiming at? Because the other interesting thing, of course, is that we're not in a static situation as far as our partners are concerned. I mean, the, you know, the situation is, is, very, is, is more unstable than it's been for a long time for a number of reasons, partly the problems of the Eurozone, Partly, uh, the, although it's not a problem generated by the European Union, it's the European Union's inability, perceived inability to deal with it, the whole mi- migrant uh, crisis. And if that, were to, if that were to burst upon the scene again uh, next year, that would um, completely distort any likely predictions uh, of the German election. And public sentiment in a number of European uh, countries, which is very hostile now, to the central institutions of the European Union, the Commission, the Parliament, uh, which are at the core, those are the core things that make the European Union uh, what it is. And so far, I mean, the heads of government are meeting in Bratislava on the 16th of September, minus Theresa May. Um, and the prime purpose of that is not to talk about Brexit, but to talk about what is what What, is, what are they going to say uh, to uh, the people of Europe? You know, and today you get Mrs Mogherini, the, uh, Foreign Affairs Commissioner talking about uh, uh, a European army, uh, well, if they think that the idea of a European army is going to satisfy uh, public opinion, uh, as an anxious public opinion across the European Union, I think they're uh, sadly mistaken. I mean, President Tusk, the Polish President of the European Council, to his credit, does understand this. I mean, he's, he's been a careful student of our referendum. Uh, careful student of what Theresa May said on the steps of, of Downing Street that here is a referendum result which regardless of the EU bid led a British Conservative Prime Minister to make a statement on the steps of Downing Street which you would normally expect to be made by a Labour Prime Minister not a Conservative Prime Minister and the question is have the rest of the heads of government in Europe got their heads round uh, the fact that something, in their own, something similar in their own countries is, uh, is going on the best idea that I've seen so far is put forward by um, a French economist and a group. Uh, he's called Pisani Ferry. Uh, and his idea is, is really of a kind of uh, a European partnership. Uh, in other words, that you would have a situation in which you would have a core of European Union countries who would go ahead if they so wish on further integration. And you would have a country such as as Britain uh, which would continue to be part of the single market would pay for the privilege of doing so wouldn't have complete freedom of movement but would have I mean pure freedom of movement is not an, is not essential to a single market freedom of movement for people to come to work is so freedom of movement linked specifically to to uh, to work and Britain participating uh, Britain not having a, a, a say a vote on future evolutions of European legislation, but obviously having the ability to at least lobby about future developments of the single market, and a cooperative arrangement on the things that we need to cooperate on, foreign and security policy, uh, climate change, uh, and, uh, and so on. Now, I think that you might eventually get to such a situation. I think I think there's gonna be a, a, a long and acrimonious uh, negotiation to, uh, uh, to get there. But that's the best idea I've seen so far. But I'd really, really be, like to know what you think. And, um, and uh, so you know, starting with, does anybody think we should, we should be, instead of, instead of working out how we make the best of a bad world, should we be trying to, to uh, fight against it? Okay. Thank you very much.